Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be starting in, in verse 7 and going to verse 11 this morning. Philippians 1, 7 to 11. We're at the beginning of a study through the book of Philippians that I've called the Christ-centered life. As I was preparing to preach the book of Philippians, I was reminded time and again as I read through passage after passage, Paul is telling the Philippians over and over again to, in one way or another, fix their eyes on Christ and really consider Him in every facet of everything that they do. Last week, we, he uh, assured the church at Philippi that God, who had begun a good work in them, would finish it, bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He will challenge them, Paul will, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, as we'll see today. He'll challenge them to have the love of Christ, to have the humility of Christ, to proclaim Christ at all costs, to let their life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live is Christ, he will tell them. One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth before Christ And that's just the first chapter and a half. Needless to say, Paul wants the church to excel in their life by keeping Christ at the center of everything that they do, in the center of all of their thoughts and affections. Paul was, remember, a missionary that that brought the gospel originally to Philippi. We actually do have a map this morning, and I want to show it to you, if we can display that. On the screen behind me. Hey, look at that. Miracle of miracles. We have a map. I hope you can see it, maybe. There is Philippi at the top, and Neapolis is 10 miles south of Philippi, right there on the sea. Neapolis is the port on the Mediterranean Sea. Philippi is just north of that. And if you continue to go on down by the baptistry and down this direction, you'll eventually hit Athens, Greece, which is about 200 miles away. You'll remember that here we saw a meager beginning for the church at Philippi, where Paul is preaching the gospel to a small group of God-fearing Jewish women located outside of the city gates. There's not even a synagogue in the town, and Paul is preaching the gospel to them. And one lady named Lydia comes to faith in Jesus. We also saw that Paul and Silas, and maybe even Luke, were captured there and arrested in Philippi, and jailed. And it was there that their integrity, their singing of praises to the Lord, their prayers out loud, eventually led one of the Philippian jailers to faith. He and his whole family was baptized. So now, some years later, about 10, maybe 15 years later, Paul is writing to this church and he, that, has, that is now firmly established with both elders and deacons. We also see that he writes to All the saints, which certainly sounds like more than just Lydia and the jailer. It sounds like a whole crowd of people. We're not told how many. But it leads Paul to the conclusion in verse 6 that it was God who began began a good work in them. And if it was God that began, began the good work in them, He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. So we can see that first, the Christ-centered life we saw last week is a work that God does in the lives of His children. It's work that He begins, and it's a work that He brings to completion. 
This is not something that is born of our own abilities, but a work that God does from the day of salvation all the way to the day of Christ's return. Which, if we're really honest with one another, that's encouraging. Or it should be. I think Paul intends for it to be that to the church at Philippi, and I think he intends it to be that for you and I. This is not a work that you began, and it's not a work that you can finish. It is a work that God has begun and will bring to completion. Now, that won't remove them from human responsibility, as we're going to see Paul later get to in the book of Philippians, but we're not there yet. That, that won't ultimately remove them from human responsibility, but it is a great encouragement to know that God is going to bring it to completion. With that being the case, let's look at our text this morning, and Paul is going to continue his thought on how he is confident that God is going to bring this work that he began to completion. So let's look at our text, Philippians 1, 7-11. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because, you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word that we have read and that are now going to seek to understand, you would give us help in understanding it. Would your Spirit move among us? Give us the ability to interpret it, to discern its meaning, and to apply it to our lives. I do not know what is going on in the heart of every person in this room, but you do. So I pray that you would, through your Spirit, apply it to each and every one of us. Where conviction is needed, I pray you would bring conviction and bring repentance that would come on the backside of that. I pray also, where there is encouragement, that you would give encouragement. Father, only you can do that through your Spirit, so would you do it? In Jesus' name, amen. I am a black coffee drinker, I confess. That is what is in this mug right here, is black coffee. I don't take it with sugar at all. It is intended to be drank this way, all right? When my wife mistakenly grabs my cup and doesn't pay attention, or when my kids have tasted the coffee that I drink, their response is all the same. Something like that. How do you drink that stuff, is what they always ask. To which every black coffee drinker is equipped with the answer. It's an acquired taste, right? Isn't that what we say? It's an acquired taste. And to some extent, that's true. I mean, I didn't start off drinking black coffee. It grew on me over time. But it's not entirely true, is it? I mean, yes, it's an acquired taste to some extent. You do grow in it. But at the same time, you kind of have to like it from the beginning. There's some people that just hate coffee. They don't even like coffee. Ice cream, which, shame on you. But they don't like coffee of any kind. And so for them, it probably cannot be acquired. But for a coffee drinker, someone who actually has a like of it, a prior love of it, it does grow on you over time, and you become more and more in love with it. In our passage this morning, there's two, really two main sections that Paul is going to get to as he talks about his love for the church at Philippi. 
The first, he mentions his love in verses 7 and 8, and he talks extensively about it. And then the second portion of the passage is in verses 9 to 11, where he talks about their love for each other. So first, he's going to talk about his love for them, and then second, their love for each other. But he's not only going to express his love for the Philippians, he's really going to clue us in onto, into our real goal of sanctification, how it is that we as a church body, how it is that we as individual Christians can acquire over time this progressed love for one another. So if your desire as a Christian is to grow, then Paul is going to reveal to us in this passage something that we need to pay attention to. First, we're going to see that Christ-centered love is really deeper than human emotion and it's empowered by Christ Himself. Christ-centered love is deeper than human emotion, and it's empowered by Christ Himself. Remember we read last week, Paul told them in verse 6, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So now, he's going to continue that thought, and he's going to justify his statement that he just made in verse 6, and he's going to give the reason for his confidence. Why is it that Paul can be so confident that not only did God begin this work, but that he's going to bring it to completion? Now remember, when you read the writings of Paul, it can often make your head spin. And the reason is because Paul is extremely logical. He's so logical that he develops in his writing this chain of logic that often has points and subpoints and sub subpoints and sub sub subpoints that we're going to see. So his logic is often layered deeply, and he uses tons of fors and becauses that are going to give the reason for the next link in the chain. And so you've got to follow all those fors and becauses to understand what he's talking about. It even leads Peter, remember, the apostle Peter. To say about Paul in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. So if you're reading this and you're going, what on earth is he saying? You're in good company. Even in the Bible, it says some of the things are hard to understand. I have a feeling that Peter is, said this because he's probably getting the same question from some of the people that he's ministering to that every preacher in America has received from their congregation. Why can't he just say it? Haven't you said that before? So let's see if we can follow what he's saying here. He starts off with, It is right for me to feel this way. Meaning, meaning confident about what God has begun, that He'll bring it to completion. It is right for me to uh, feel this way. He says, because I hold you in my heart. So the reason, first of all, that he is sure that God is going to bring to completion this ongoing work that he has started in them is because the people in Philippi have a special place in Paul's heart. And that doesn't sound like a great reason for his confidence, does it? When Paul says that, he means it like he meant it to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7.3. He said this, using very same similar uh, expression. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we should live or die with you. 
Now, I, I put the NIV translation up there mainly because I think it captures the sense of what Paul is actually getting at here. When Paul says that the church at Philippi has a special place in his heart, the sense that that carries is Paul's willingness to live and die for them. That he is putting the gospel out there from his mouth on their behalf, and he's doing so at the expense of his own life. That even if it meant someone would kill me, I would gladly die on your behalf. That's the kind of friendship that we have. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe it's a sibling, a brother or sister. Maybe it's a parent or loved one, a child, where you feel so attached to them that you would gladly put your life on the line for them. Paul's reminding them of this fact. You have a special place in my heart to the point that dying for them is a joy. He says this, and later on in this chapter, he's going to express a similar sentiment to the point where he talks about dying and being with the Lord and going on in ministry. If I go on in ministry, that's to your benefit. And dying would be with the Lord, and that's, that's far better. But he admits that he's hard-pressed between those two. Are you hard-pressed between those two? Being with the Lord or ministering to a group of some people that you may never have met before? Paul expresses this kind of love that he has for the church at Philippi. But that's not the end of his logic. He says that you hold a special place in my heart. And then he gives another four, which is another explanation. He says, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here's the real reason why he has such a confidence that God has begun a good work in them and that he will see it through to completion and why they hold a special place in his heart so much so that he would gladly die on their behalf. It's because, he says, they are partakers in the gospel of grace with him. He uses the word partakers here. Earlier in the passage, I think it's verse 5, he uses the word partnership. But it's that same root word, and it's actually a word you probably know well or you've heard. You ever heard the word koinonia? Fellowship? Communion? The relationship that he and the Philippians have together has a gospel foundation. And that's what he's saying. The reason that I'm confident that God began the good work in you and He's going to see it through to completion is because you are partakers with me of grace. Our relationship, our bond of love is built on the foundation of the gospel. It's not on superficial realities. It's not that we had things in common. It's not that we were of similar age or background. It's that our relationship was built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And having that gospel foundation together, I have seen in you work that God has done. I have seen you partake with me in ministry in Philippi and abroad. You have ministered to me in my need in prison, which is where he's writing from now. So he and the church have this undying love that is formed on the basis, not of some other mutual fellowship, but on the mutual fellowship of faith. So Paul takes it to the next step in verse 8. For God is my witness 
how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This kind of love that He has for them is so strong, He says, that only God Himself could attest to the depths of it. The reason that only God can testify to the love that could testify on Paul's behalf and others. He, God can stand in the docket for me and tell you exactly how much I love you. He can testify as I am on trial that I have a deep and abiding love for you. And the reason that that is the case is because the love that he has for them is exactly the love of Christ Jesus, he says. His love for them comes from Christ. You understand? In other words, Christ has given him the ability supernaturally to love them and so much so that only God could testify on his behalf that this is the case. So those two verses contain this sort of logical chain, but here's the short of it. If I were to write it maybe in my own words to kind of get the sense of it. Philippians, God is at work in you, and He's going to complete His work. I'm confident of this because I have seen your tireless labor with me over the gospel, even while I'm in prison. I have the kind of deep and abiding affection for you that Jesus Himself has for His people. Paul's love for the Philippians is, in other words, Christ-centered. That is precisely what Christ-centered love for brothers and sisters in the faith actually looks like. You can't get more Christ-centered than that. Having Christ dwell in you and fuel the love that you have for someone else. You can almost see him pacing his prison cell, dictating this letter to Timothy as Timothy is writing and Paul, perhaps even sometimes, finding it difficult to even adequately describe his affection for them in words. So he appeals to God as a witness that only he can testify to the feelings that he has for them that he's trying to express. Now let's come up for air for just a second and let's ask. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is describing is not professional love. This isn't love in the big leagues. This is Christian love. This is what Christ has won you to. He has won you to a body of believers in whom you are to have this kind of love for one another. This is Christ-centered love for our brothers and sisters. Now, there will always be people in the body that you have a different kind of relationship with than others. You might have a different relationship, obviously, with your spouse than you would with perhaps other brothers and sisters in the church body. Perhaps some are easier to talk to, or maybe there's a whole host of other reasons why you might have more in common or more akin to these brothers and sisters that are around you. But remember, Paul says about this, uh, uh, the, the Philippian church here that he has a deep and abiding love for them and he expresses a very similar thing to the church at Corinth. Now, I don't know if you know the difference between the letter to the Philippian church and the letter to the Corinthian church, 
But let's just say his letter to the Corinthian church doesn't come across nearly as, uh, how shall we say, bubbly as the letter to the Philippians. There's a lot of problems in Corinth. So many so that he takes the last half of the letter to address every single problem that's going on. And then before them, criticize them for the way that they've tolerated sin in their congregation. Yet the love that he expresses for them is the same that he expresses for the church at Philippi. His love is empowered by Christ Himself. You see, Christ-centered love can correct others without being bitter towards them. It can encourage others without flattery. It can compliment without ulterior motives. Christ-centered love can seek knowledge without puffing up. It can rebuke with strength, and yet it can forgive without a second thought. It is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never ends. How would you describe your love for others? Others in this body. Better yet, how would they describe your love for them? How would you describe your love for those who bear the name of Christ? Remember, Paul is not describing here professional Christianity. He's describing regular, everyday Christian affection. It's true, Christ-centered love that he's laying out here. He's describing a person whose heart is centered on Christ, and so he feels about them the way that Christ feels about them. Do you know how the truth of that right there changes your marriage? You know how that changes friendships? Can you imagine a relationship where that kind of Christ-centered love doesn't radically change from top to bottom? Even the kind of love that you might have for an unbeliever How would this kind of Christ-centered love not radically change that from top to bottom? Would you not also see them as eternal souls standing in front of you? Who need the gospel? This kind of Christ-centered love would change every relationship you have down to the very marrow. It was Jesus, after all, who said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. That you have all of your theological ducks in a row. Oh, wait, no, 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 that's not what he said. He says, By this people will know that you are my disciples. If they're really nice to you. That's not what he says. If you have love for one another. The very mark of identification of the body of Christ is how well they love each other. 
Ask then, what is dissension in the body? What is bitterness, slander, or hatred in the body? What is gossip in the body? Is it not also a mark of identification? Identifying this body as not one that belongs to Christ? Perhaps your love for others has been found wanting. But did you know that Christ-centered love can actually be fostered? It can be grown? It can be matured? Maybe you're sitting here going, man, I don't love anywhere near like that. How could I possibly grow love within me? Glad you asked. Brings us to our second point. Christ-centered love is fostered by knowledge and discernment. Christ-centered love is fostered by knowledge and discernment. So Paul transitions from his love for them to their love for each other. And he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So his love for their fellowship with him is what he hopes to see grown and matured in them. God has begun this good work. He's going to see it to completion. And this is how he aims to see it to completion. As it abounds more and more, there's two other virtues that Paul throws into the mix here that will foster this kind of Christ-centered love for one another. The first is knowledge, and the second is discernment. He actually says that his prayer for them is that their love would abound more and more in, literally he says, in knowledge and all discernment. Discernment might also be translated depth of insight, meaning that there are ways for their love to abound and grow. And how does it do that? By these two other virtues that accompany it. So what we're looking at here might be seen like points on a triangle where there would be love at the top and there would be knowledge and discernment on the other two points. And these three are intended to be held in tension with one another. And if they are held in tension with one another, then each one will abound. Now, you might be thinking, if you really got up this morning and ate your Wheaties, and you put your thinking cap on, and you, you were really just attuned to the rest of the Bible, you might think, wasn't there one time where Paul told the church at Corinth that knowledge puffs up? Didn't he say that? Yeah, he's in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, he says, we know that all of us possess this knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So in this verse, it seems like what Paul is saying is that Knowledge and love are like boxers in a ring with one another. One is in one corner and the other is in the other corner. And so you might be tempted to think, well, wait a second. If knowledge puffs up and love builds up, then Paul is obviously commending to the church at Corinth that they pursue love and not knowledge. Don't pursue knowledge because that just puffs you up. Well, then why does he then turn around to the Philippian church and commend to them growing in knowledge. Should I pursue knowledge or should I not pursue knowledge? What if I told you that he's actually saying the same thing in both of these passages? In the Corinthian passage, the Corinthians have written to Paul a letter, and it's got a lot of questions on it. 
And Paul is taking the second half of the letter to answer all of their questions. And we don't have the letter that they wrote to Paul, which I wish we did, but we don't have that letter. But by the way he answers the questions, we can kind of tell what was in the letter and what kinds of questions they were asking. There's obviously a problem in the church at Corinth where the Christians there have felt some sense of freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols. They've probably told Paul, or they've been probably told from Paul that they could do that. That they could eat food sacrificed to idols. It's not, food's not going to condemn you. What goes into the mouth won't defile you. And so you can eat whatever you want to. And so they've taken this Christian freedom and they sort of flaunted it in front of all of the members of their body. See, it's no problem. We as Christians can eat this. But then they get this question because, hey, we, we know that we have all this freedom that you've preached to us time and again to eat all of this food. But old Joe, former pagan, has told us time and again he has a big problem with it. So which is it? Do we have freedom or should we have a problem with it? And so Paul writes back to them saying that the knowledge they have of the freedom that they have in Christ is puffing them up. And it's leading them to eat food sacrificed to idols in the presence of someone that has a problem with it. And their knowledge and their love are like boxers standing in opposite corners and they're fighting one another. And therein lies the problem. It's not specifically knowledge. It's that their knowledge is absent love. And if knowledge is absent love, it puffs up. But knowledge working together with love actually builds up the body. Watch how these two work together just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 8, 7 and 9. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we, if, uh, if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He doesn't condemn them for knowing something. He condemns them for using it in inappropriate ways. See, love, true biblical Christian love, keeps the knowledgeable person from floating away, from being puffed up. It tethers knowledge to the ground. It keeps them from becoming a scoffer, what the Bible would call a scoffer, someone who knows all the answers and uses it in every situation to beat you over the head with it. So it's right for Paul to criticize the kind of knowledge and the way that the Corinthians are using it and then turn around to the Philippians and commend knowledge to them. And to both, what he is commending is knowledge and love working in tandem with one another. Because after all, if I have knowledge and have not love, I am nothing. But notice that to the Philippians, Paul is wanting their love to increase with knowledge. He wants them to grow in knowledge. He wants them to pursue knowledge. But he's not just recommending that they get smarter. That's not what he's doing. He's not just recommending that they get smarter, like practice your sword drills or do Bible trivia every night. That's not what he's commending to them. He actually doesn't even use the word that would, be, that would denote that. 
the kind of academic knowledge. What he's actually recommending there is a deep understanding of God himself and what that then means is the moral implications that follow. If you grow to know God, then know all of the things that He commands. It's an understanding of moral matters that stem from understanding God. That's what He's commending to them. See, the more we know of God, the more we know of Jesus, the more we're made like Jesus. There is some debate in in parenting circles about nature versus nurture. Are you born this way or do you grow in that kind of knowledge. When you look in the mirror one day when you're 40 years old and you say, I have turned into my parent. You do that? My dad came to stay with us just not that long ago. Just, he just left last week. And everything that he did and everything that I did, I'm thinking in my head, my dad does that. Paul is saying here that There is a nurturing kind of knowledge that you can grow in. That the more you come to know God, the more you come to know your Father, the more you become like Him. The more you come to know Christ, the more you become like Him. So he's commending to them the kind of knowledge, not that puffs up, but that is directed in love at understanding who Christ is. So the more you know about Him, the more you know Him, the more you grow in love because that's precisely who He is. Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 4.13 where he says, Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now in that same passage, just two verses prior, he's talking about why God gave teachers to the church. And the reason he gave teachers to the church is so that they can expound on the scriptures in front of them. And as they do, they will attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And what will that produce? Well, he says they're mature adulthood. He doesn't just mean becoming adults. He means becoming mature Christians. It will produce maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the goal of knowledge. We don't meet in here on Wednesday. We don't meet in here on Sunday morning or early Sunday morning or even in the worship service to just merely grow in knowledge as if it were an academic exercise. It's not about leaving the church building and walking away going, look, I learned something today. It's asking, was sin confronted in my life? Do I look more like Christ now than I did when I first got here? Encountering the Word is about growing in maturity to becoming more like Christ. That's the goal. It's not just empty knowledge or vain pursuit. But this again is for God to grant. God actually grants us this knowledge. Paul says in Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. It is God's to grant. In other words, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. This is God's doing as He works in you. Make no mistake about it, that this maturity comes through knowledge. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So if love keeps the knowledge from being puffed up, then you might say knowledge causes love to mature. It's no longer puppy love anymore. Without knowledge, love is however you want to define it. Does that sound familiar? The very culture that we live in would seek to define love another way. It's however you want to define it. That is precisely love untethered from the knowledge of God. But knowing God, I can no longer say to my friend, you do you. But I have to ask my friend, what does the Bible say? But finally, the the third point on this triangle here is discernment. The idea here is similar to what we might mean when we say the word wisdom. It's a level of insight that guides our words and our actions. So not only do we grow in knowledge, not only do we abound in love, but we actually know how to apply it. It allows us to peer into situations. To have a level of wisdom as we approach the everyday situations of life. To see behind the veil. To know what action would be required on our part at which time. It's used quite a bit in the Old Testament. Like Proverbs 19.25. Strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. The scoffer, as I've said earlier, takes the knowledge that he has, untethered from love, and applies it inappropriately. Solomon here in Proverbs is recommending that he be struck. Okay. Perhaps I'd be arrested for something. (laughs) So love tethers knowledge to the ground. Knowledge causes love to mature. Notice that as the scoffer is, comes in and is struck, you know, presumably on the mouth, for saying something inappropriate or applying knowledge at the wrong time. The man is struck and the pupil under, grows in knowledge. He grows in understanding. He grows in wisdom as to when to apply that kind of knowledge and when to hold back. Discernment applies both knowledge and love to a given situation. Discernment knows when the loving action is to correct somebody or when to listen. Discernment can listen without trying to solve. Husbands, paying attention? I'm telling myself that. We always want to fix it. Discernment is being able to listen and without trying to solve. And then sometimes, when to solve. It's knowing the difference between the two. So Paul's prayer is that love would abound in the Philippians, but not untethered love. Love that is mature. It's love that grows with knowledge and with discernment. The three held in tension with one another. So for the Christian, this kind of growth is acquired over time. It's an acquired taste. It's pursued. It is produced. It is fostered. It is cultivated till it becomes a deep and abiding truth in your life. It's grown in the Christian through the study of God's Word. It's grown in the Christian by being around other mature believers. But look in verse 10. 
that they would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes, how? Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So while it's true that it's an acquired taste that you have to grow in over time, there is a basis of love for Christ that has to be there from the beginning. This is not the kind of righteousness that can be produced on your own strength. This is not the kind of righteousness that you can muster by yourself. This is not the kind of righteousness that might seek to take the words of Scripture and go, I can live by these absent Christ. This is only a kind of righteousness that is produced by an indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Friends, we understand that we are born into sin. That there is nothing in us that has the ability to earn God's favor for us. Nothing within us that could put ever God in our debt. There is nothing by which we could ever earn eternal life. There's no reason I could stand before God on judgment day and could give an account for all the righteousness that I've heaped up on my own behalf. All of it is filthy rags. The only grounding we stand on is the righteousness Christ provided for us. He's the one that lived righteously. He's the one that died on our behalf. It's only because of His righteous works that we get anything. It's given to us by the grace and mercy of God. The love that Paul is praying will grow is the product of the indwelling Holy Spirit that Christ gives to us by His grace and His mercy. So then we ask, is your knowledge of God untethered from love? Do you have your theological ducks in a row? And do you feel like it has made you the righteously indignant one? That you have the right now, because you have your theological ducks in a row, to pound everybody on the head? Is that what you feel like your ministry is? Look, all of us read the Jesus in John flipping over the tables, the righteously indignant Jesus, and we all go, yeah, I want that kind of ministry. The kind of ministry that tells everybody else where they can stick it. The reason that Jesus had a righteously indignant ministry or that that was a part of his ministry is because he was righteous. You're not. That's not your ministry, I can assure you. If the knowledge that you have, the theological ducks that you have in a row, has not led you to be unbelievably loving towards somebody else, then I would question your theological ducks. Not only would I question them, the Bible would say, they're not there. You have knowledge, and it's puffed you up. Is your love untethered from knowledge? When you encounter friends, family members, where you know you and them stand in different places, do you always keep silent? 
Do you always avoid confrontation? Are you always the one that says, well, I'll just let them be them. I can't really say much to them. Is it loving to allow everyone in your life to pursue death without one word from you? That's love without knowledge. If you understand God and you understand who He is and judgment is very real for you, you understand what's happening when this life is over. How can we not say one word? That's love without knowledge. Is your love and your knowledge untethered from discernment? Do you see every error as one that you have to step in and correct? Is there never a time where you just go, we'll let that go for now? Or perhaps do you see no error that needs your voice? You channel your disagreement into gossip, into slander, into grumbling, instead of addressing it and moving on. Is that your tact? When you have a problem, do others get brought into the problem? Or do you address it with the one you have a problem with? Does your love and your knowledge lack discernment? The challenge for us is to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Let's grow in understanding who Jesus was. How did he address the problems? When he came into the world, what would have happened if he had smacked everyone to hell who didn't have their theological ducks in a row? His disciples never would have made it. You understand. There's no one that had their theological ducks more in a row than Jesus. And what did it lead him to do? To die for the ones that didn't. You realize he had a zealot in his disciples' crew? You know what a zealot is? A zealot wanted to conquer Rome by military force. He had one of them in his discipling body. And yet he applied and refrained. He applied to the teachers. He challenged them. He confronted them. And his indignation was not until much later in his ministry. And yet he died for the disciple that was the zealot. How could we potentially use our knowledge and tether it to love? And actually let discernment accompany it. Perhaps it would be growing to become more like Jesus himself. I promise you, knowledge that is actual knowledge is going to lead you to an undying love for the person the people, particularly in this room, but even beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us? The word in your scriptures is often difficult. We pray for discernment, for wisdom. We pray for knowledge. We pray for love. We pray that all of these three would abound more and more in us.
We pray that you would bring conviction to us where our love has lacked knowledge and where our knowledge has lacked love and where those two have lacked discernment. Would you convict us? Give us the gift of repentance. Allow us to turn from those things and pursue the love and righteousness of Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.